If you have seen pictures of the remains of ancient Corinth, you have probably seen a picture of the Temple of Apollo. The Temple of Apollo was built in the 6th century BC, and parts of it still stand today. Seven of the original 38 columns survive because of the high quality of the materials with which that temple was constructed. These are massive Doric columns, and they still hold up part of the roof today. Uh, two of my children, Caleb and Zoe, uh, went a couple of years ago um, and saw those ruins in Corinth, and they brought back to me pictures. Um, and it really is a sight that this temple has survived uh, in any form all the way through the centuries to this date. The Corinthians were familiar uh, with how temples were constructed. The most conspicuous landmark at Corinth was the Acro-Corinth, a mountain to the south of the city, reaching a height of 1,886 feet. The Temple of Aphrodite stood on its highest peak, crowning the Acro-Corinth, uh, looking down upon the city. And Corinth had temples for other gods and goddesses as well. All of these temples had been constructed with the highest quality materials. Materials that were understood would endure, that would stand the test of time. In our text, Paul uses the construction of a temple as a metaphor. A metaphor for the construction of Christ's church. And as we will see, this is the business that we as believers are to be about the construction of Christ's church. Uh, but we will, are not free to build this temple, this church, with whatever materials we see fit. Uh, we will see in our text the high-quality materials that we are to build with. It is a wonderful passage that warns us and instructs us in living for our Lord Jesus Christ in the church which Christ is building. I'm going to read to us our text, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. Uh, please stand in honor of the Word of God if you are able. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. In the previous paragraph, the Apostle Paul spoke about gospel ministry. And he used agricultural metaphors. Now look back at verse 5. Verse 5, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers... You are God's field, God's building. So Paul used an agricultural metaphor. Just as a farmer will plant a field with seed, so the apostle Paul planted the church in Corinth as he preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as in a field you need another farmer to come along and to, to water what has been planted, so the the the, the, the man Apollos, uh, who was gifted for ministry, 
Uh, he was involved in the ministry of the Word in Corinth after the Apostle Paul had, had left. And the church was led by Apollos. The Apollos ministered in the church. He watered what Paul had planted. And so Paul has said that the church is God's field. But then he switches the metaphor at the end of verse 9. He says, you are God's field, God's building. So we go from an agricultural metaphor for the church and ministry in the church to a construction metaphor. You, the church, are God's building. This introduces our text. The apostle will, will tell us in verse 16 what kind of building the local church is. Go down to verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? So the church, the local church, is a specific kind of building. It is likened to a temple. The local church is God's temple. The Holy Spirit dwells in the local church. This construction metaphor runs all throughout our text of the, the church being a building, a, a temple that is being constructed. And Paul in our text continues to give us a biblical view of church ministry. Now if you visit um, a lot of different churches uh, in Middlesex County or in New Jersey or in the United States, uh, you'll, you'll find many different kinds of churches, many different kinds of Ministries, and you'll, you'll find many different approaches to ministry. We need a biblical view of church ministry. We, we need to know what the scriptures teach as far as the nature of the church, the nature of ministry in the church, how ministry is to be done in the church. So that we're not following along with other churches, saying, what, oh, what they're doing must be good because they have so many people. It's working. We must follow their example. No. We must not follow another church as the standard for how ministry is to be done. We're to look to the Word of God. And so we are to have a biblical view of the church, a biblical view of ministry. And that's what our text does for us today. As we will see, each of us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is a servant in Christ's church. Uh, we are a builder in Christ's church. And we need to understand this passage in connection with the rest of the New Testament that we might be faithful in Christ's church. Uh, this morning in our text, uh, we first of all see, uh, be careful how you build in the church. And secondly, we see in our text, build the church in view of the future day of Christ's return. First of all, be careful how you build the church. Take a close look, beginning at verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I lay the foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Here Paul speaks of God's grace in calling him to serve as an apostle of Jesus Christ, God's grace in empowering Paul for ministry. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Uh, Paul stated the same thing back in verse 6a, using the agricultural metaphor. He said back in verse 6 that like a farmer planting a field, the apostle had planted the church in Corinth. Now with the new metaphor, he states the same thing, saying, I laid a foundation. Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. That is, he laid the foundation of the church in Corinth. He's not talking about constructing a church building. We are meeting right now in a church building, and we're very thankful to the Lord for this building. But the church in Corinth did not have a building. Uh, churches in that day did not have 
buildings. They would meet in homes or similar meeting places. They wouldn't have a, a church building, a building that was just devoted for the gatherings of the church. She's not talking here about the construction of a literal material building. No, when he's talking uh, about uh, constructing the church, when he's talking about the foundation of the church, he, he, he's likening a church to a, a building. Now, what is a church? Since a church is not a building, what is a church? A church is essentially an assembly of believers in Jesus Christ who are committed to one another and gathered together for the purpose of biblical worship and fellowship under the oversight of biblically qualified elders. Now, that's a concise definition. We could add more to that, but that's a, a, a very... A, the very essence of what a church is. Now, Paul says that like a skilled master builder, he laid the foundation of the church in Corinth. And he tells us more about the foundation in verse 11. Look at verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul laid a foundation by preaching Jesus Christ and Him crucified and raised on the third day. Paul laid a foundation by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in Corinth. The church's foundation is viewed in our text as the doctrine of Jesus Christ, of His atoning death and of His triumphant resurrection. This is the message that Paul has been speaking of ever since chapter 1, verse 17, where he called this message the gospel, literally the good news. This is a message that is seen as folly by those who are perishing, according to chapter 1, verse 18, but is seen as the power and the wisdom of God by those who are called, according to chapter 1, verse 24. The foundation of a temple was critical. The foundation determined the layout of the temple. And a massive amount of weight rested on the foundation. The foundation had to be able to hold the weight of the entire superstructure. And the foundation of a local church is just as critical. Paul says in verse 10, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. The term master builder means the chief engineer of a construction project. The master builder is the man who oversees all the workers. Paul did not work alone in laying the foundation of the church in Corinth. Acts 18 speaks of Paul being joined by Silas and Timothy in that gospel ministry in Corinth. And there were others as well that Paul labored together with. But as an apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul took the lead. As a skilled master builder, he laid a foundation. And he says, and someone else is building upon it. Now understand that this was good and necessary for someone else to build upon the foundation. Christ had entrusted to Paul a ministry of taking the gospel to places where Christ was not named and planting churches in those places. Paul could not stay in Corinth. The Lord Jesus Christ had other places that Paul was to go with the gospel and to, to plant churches. And so it was necessary for someone else to build on the foundation that the Apostle Paul laid. In verse 6, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered. Apollos was, was one man who, who built on that foundation that the Apostle Paul laid. But Apollos was not the only one. There were many others as well. Understand that the task of building a local church is a task that will not be complete until Jesus Christ comes for His church. Paul speaks in the present tense. Someone else is building upon it. The church is to continue to be built up until Jesus Christ comes again. The church is built as souls are saved, and as those who are saved are conformed to the image of Christ. Now, what will the church look like when it is completed? 
Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, tell us what the church will look like uh, when it is completed in its construction. Ephesians 4.11 says, Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what will the church look like uh, when it is finished and being constructed? Paul speaks of it as the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, mature manhood, being built up into the, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The, the, the church will perfectly reflect its head, the Lord Jesus Christ, when this construction is completed. When the work of building the church is done, uh, the, the, the church will be grounded in the faith, It will understand the truth. It will be conformed to the truth of Christ. It will be matured in Christ. It will perfectly reflect its head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul gives a command at the end of verse 10. Look in verse 10 at that command at the end. He says, Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Let each one take care Take care how he builds on the church's foundation. He commands us not to take care that we build upon the foundation, but he commands us to take care how we build upon the foundation. This is the apostle's great concern. His great concern is how we build. That we would build in a way that pleases our head, the Lord Jesus Christ and not in any way that we see fit. Now, what does Paul have in mind? Take care how one builds upon it. Well, we'll think of the contrast that Paul has repeatedly made throughout the epistle so far between the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. Back in chapter 1, verse 17, Paul said, Christ sent me to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He didn't come preaching with words of eloquent wisdom. He didn't come preaching the wisdom of man. He didn't come with with, with words that reflected the wisdom of this world. The orators of that day... Uh, who people would, would flock to listen to, who were, whom people were entertained by, the orators were, would, would express great earthly wisdom, human wisdom. Uh, they, they were seen as having eloquent words of wisdom. But Paul said, when I came among you, I, I, I did not preach the gospel with words of man's wisdom. I didn't preach with words of the world's wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In chapter 1, verse 23, Paul said, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. He's saying you you don't modify the message to make it sound good to the unregenerate. You don't add the world's wisdom to the gospel to make it palatable to the unregenerate? No, the gospel is an offense to the unregenerate, but to those whom God calls, to them, the gospel is the very wisdom and power of God. Because the Spirit of God is at work in their heart through the gospel message. In chapter 1, verse 30, Paul said, Because of God you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. When you were saved, Christ became to you wisdom from God. In chapter 2, verse 1, Paul said, I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He's really drilling this in. 
He did not come with the wisdom of the world. He did not come with the wisdom of, of man. He came proclaiming the wisdom of God. He came proclaiming the, the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of its offense. In chapter 2, verse 4, Paul said, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. The true wisdom is God's Word. And God's Word was being spoken through the Apostle Paul. And this is what we are to minister, not the wisdom of this world. In chapter 2, verse 12, Paul said, We have received the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And Paul will continue to talk about wisdom after our text later on in chapter 3. Wisdom, and this contrast between God's wisdom, found in the scriptures, found in the gospel, found in Christ and Christ crucified, stands in great contrast to the wisdom of the world. This whole theme runs all the way through chapters 1, 2, and 3. And our text is in the middle of it. So when the Apostle Paul now says in our text, in chapter 3, verse 10, let each one take care how he builds upon the foundation, he certainly has in mind building with the wisdom of God rather than building with the wisdom of man. The church's foundation is the revelation of God's wisdom that centers on Christ crucified. The, the, the church's foundation has nothing of man's wisdom in it. It is purely the wisdom of God. The only proper way to build on this foundation is with what? With God's wisdom. You don't take a, a foundation that is purely God's wisdom and build with man's wisdom on top of that foundation. You can only build properly on the foundation which is God's wisdom, Christ and Christ crucified. You can only properly build on that with God's wisdom. We can read between the lines in this epistle that some of the Corinthians were seeking to build the church with man's wisdom. Now, what is the difference between building the church with God's wisdom and building the church with man's wisdom? Building with God's wisdom involves proclaiming, teaching, and speaking God's word, which is centered on Christ and Him crucified. Building with God's wisdom recognizes the necessity of God's word. Uh, for the formation and growth of the church. Building with God's wisdom recognizes that the church cannot be built apart from God's word. Building with God's wisdom recognizes the sufficiency of God's word. That nothing needs to be added to God's word for the building of the church. Building with God's wisdom is building according to the specifications that are laid out for us in God's word. In contrast to building with God's wisdom, stands building the church with man's wisdom. Building the church with man's wisdom adds man's wisdom to the message that the church is proclaiming to make the message sound better to people. Building with man's wisdom uses man's wisdom to get people to profess faith in Christ. Building with man's wisdom uses man's wisdom to get people to come to church services. It uses man's wisdom to get people to commit to the church. It uses man's wisdom to get people to serve in the church. Examples of building with man's wisdom include a preacher adding entertainment to his sermons. Or making people feel comfortable in our gatherings by avoiding talking about offensive ideas such as sin and judgment. Another example of building with man's wisdom would be taking confrontation out of evangelism and turning evangelism into inviting unbelievers to church. Now just think about that one. The church service is designed for the edification of the believer. What do we see 
the New Testament evangelism is. Evangelism is confronting an unbeliever with the truths of God's law and of the gospel. Confronting sin, calling to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what happens if we take the confrontation out of evangelism and we turn it into inviting people to our services? That's not evangelism. It's good to invite people to our services, but we can't see that as evangelism. If we turn evangelism from confrontation with the truth of God into inviting people to a service that we hope they're going to feel comfortable in, that's adulterating evangelism. It's using man's wisdom to try to accomplish God's purposes. Another example of building the church with man's wisdom would be when new people come to our services, seeking to make them feel comfortable rather than seeking to introduce them to Christ and the gospel. What's our, our goal when a new person comes into our services? It should not be to make them feel as comfortable as possible so they'll keep coming. If they don't know Christ, our goal should be to introduce them to the Savior. To introduce them to Jesus. It's very easy for man's wisdom to come into the church. It's very easy for man's wisdom to come into the work of building up the church. Into evangelism. Into trying to get people into the church. Trying to get them committed in the church. It's very easy, and we have to resist using man's wisdom in building Christ's church. Building the church with God's wisdom entails building with God's word using God's methods, while building with man's wisdom entails building with man's message using man's methods. Paul says in verse 11 of our text, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So we must be careful that we do not start laying a different foundation for our church. And there are some so-called churches out there that are laying a whole new foundation. We must be careful that we don't start laying a different foundation for the church. And we must be careful that, we, that what we build on the foundation matches the foundation of Christ and Him crucified. This passage certainly is aimed at the leaders of the local church and the main preachers and teachers in the church. We read in James chapter 3, verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. However, at the same time, our text is worded in such a way to include all the members of the church. I want you to observe some words in our text that indicate that this does apply to all the members of the church. Look at verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Each one. Look at verse 12. Now if anyone builds on the foundation, anyone. Look at verse 13. Each one's work will become manifest. Each one's. Look at verse 14. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives. Anyone. And look at the word, look, look at verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up. Again, the word anyone. What Paul is saying here, while there is a special focus upon the ministers of the word of God, uh, who have a, a public ministry in the church, or well, is a focus on the leaders of the church. What Paul says here applies to all the members of the church, and we need to understand that. Paul's epistles are clear that every member of the church has an important role to play in the edification of the local church. When we get to chapter 12, he's going to talk about spiritual gifts. He's going to make the point that every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ has been given 
a spiritual gift for the edification of the body. That every member of the church is necessary in God's sight because God has brought that member to this church and He's given them a gift that is needed by all the others in the congregation. So every member of the church is a minister. Each, according to our text, each member of the church is to take care how he builds upon the foundation. There is no such thing as a church member who is a spectator. Now if you go to a concert, you are probably there as a spectator. Don't transfer into the church the same mindset like going to a concert. We're not here as spectators. We're not here to watch professionals do the work of the ministry. No, we are here in the church of Jesus Christ to serve our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are here in the church for building up Christ's body. We are here in the church for carrying out Christ's great commission. There is no such thing as a church member who is a spectator. Christ has given us work to do in the building of His church, and each of us is to put our whole heart into doing His business. What Paul says in our text about taking care, how you build on the foundation, includes how you evangelize. Keep that in mind as you are at work, and you're evangelizing, or when you have your neighbor over to your home for a meal, and you're evangelizing them. What we see in our text, take care how you build on the foundation. This includes how you evangelize. This includes how you invite people to church. This includes how you interact with newcomers to our services. This includes how you fellowship with brothers and sisters in our church. Take care how you build. We are building as we fellowship together in a godly way. Take care how you build. It includes your fellowship with brothers and sisters in our church. It includes how you disciple others. Each of us, as a follower of Christ, uh, is to be discipled by other brothers and and sisters in Christ, and we in turn are to disciple others. It's the biblical model. How you disciple is included in this. Take care how you build on the foundation. If you are a Sunday school teacher, how you teach your Sunday school class is included in this. Take care how you build. If you lead a Bible study group, or you lead a fellowship group, or you lead a prayer group, how you lead that group is included in this. Take care how you build. Many people serve behind the scenes. Cleaning the building, cutting the grass, maintaining the building, setting up for our meetings, giving financially, paying the bills. And what Paul says in our text about taking care how you build on the foundation includes such service as well. It is a matter of taking care that what we are aiming at collectively as we serve in various ways is that the church will be built with the word of God, rather than the church being built with the wisdom of man. What are you seeking to facilitate when you serve? Whether you're helping with the grounds, you're helping with with the building itself, serving in other ways, setting up for services, what are you facilitating? What are we together aiming at in our service? Are we facilitating the church being built up with God's wisdom? Or are we facilitating the church being built up with man's wisdom? The Apostle commands in our text, let each one take care how he builds upon the foundation. Our text assumes that every believer in the church is building in some way. So let me ask you, if you are a believer and you attend here regularly, are you involved in the building of Christian Fellowship Church. If, if you can't say that you are involved in the building of Christian Fellowship Church, then let our text spur you on to get involved in building Christ Church. If you need guidance on, on how can I serve, how, how can I help in, in the building up of Christ Church, ask a deacon, ask an elder, 
How can I serve? How can I be useful? That, that's why the Lord gives the church deacons and elders. To, to, to lead, to equip, to guide all the members in doing the work of the ministry. So ask, what can I do? How can I serve? If you are involved in building Christ's church, let me ask, does it matter to you how you build? Does it matter to you that we would be building with God's word, using God's methods, rather than relying on man's wisdom? Let our text deepen our commitment to be careful that we build in this way, and that what is built would be just as Christ-centered as the foundation. That is the first point in our text. Take care how you build the church. The second point is build the church in view of the future day of Christ's return. Take a close look at verse 12. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now observe that six building materials are mentioned in verse 12. The first three are the materials that Greco-Roman temples were largely made of. They were mostly constructed with precious stones like marble and adorned with gold and silver. Massive pieces of marble would be cut to the right specifications and put in place. And then gold and silver would be used to decorate and to beautify that temple. The last three materials that Paul lists are the materials that ordinary houses were made of. Wood was used for the frame of a house and for its doors. Hay was mixed with mud and used for the walls. Straw could be used for the roof. When it comes to building God's temple, the local church, it matters what kind of materials you use. Paul says, our work will be tested with fire. Verse 14 speaks of work that will survive the test of fire. And verse 15 speaks of work that will be burned up. It is the first three building materials that will survive the test of fire. Gold, silver, precious stones. They're inflammable. They're not combustible. They survive the test of fire. And it is the last three building materials that will be burned up. Wood, hay, straw. All of them will be consumed by fire. Clearly, what we are to be building with is the first three. What is precious and imperishable. What, what matches the precious and perishable nature of the foundation. What matches the precious and perishable nature of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the precious and perishable nature of His saving work. What we are to be building with is the wisdom of God. Represented by the gold, silver, and precious stones. Clearly what we are not to be building with is the last three materials. What is of lesser value and what is perishable. And that is human wisdom. The wood, the hay, the straw, they all represent human wisdom. The wisdom of this age, which chapter 2 verse 6 implies is doomed to pass away. It is the wisdom of God that endures forever. It is the wisdom of this world that will pass away. In fact, we saw in chapter 1 that God has determined to destroy the wisdom of this world. Because He alone is to be glorified. Now, to, to mix the wisdom of man with the wisdom of God in the building of Christ's church is like using alternate layers of straw and marble in the construction of a temple. Think of those great columns that would hold up the roof. Just imagine that to make your column, you, you, you put one level of marble, then a layer of straw, 
then a, a layer of marble and going back and forth. What kind of a column would that be? What kind of a temple would that be? Alternating, precious, imperishable materials. I'm sorry, imperishable, precious materials with perishable ones. It, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's unthinkable to alternate levels uh, in, in construction of the precious and what can be consumed by fire. It's unthinkable. And yet oftentimes that's what's done in the church. In building the church, there's a mixing together of God's wisdom and man's wisdom. In verse 12, Paul says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. What is this day that will disclose it? It's the day that Paul spoke of back in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Go back to chapter 1, verse 7. We read, So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has in mind the day of Christ's return. He has in mind the second coming of Christ. That, that is the day that he speaks of in our text as well. Chapter 3, verse 13. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. After our Lord Jesus Christ returns, we who are His servants will have to give an account to Him regarding the ministry that He entrusted to us. Uh, this was referred to in chapter 3, verse 8. If you look at chapter 3, verse 8, He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Receive his wages from the Master, from the Lord, Jesus Christ, according to his labor. Now in our text, in verse 13, Paul says, Each one's work will become manifest. Each one's work in building the church will become Manifest, or as the New American Standard renders it, will become evident. Or NIV, will be shown for what it is. On that day when Jesus Christ comes again, all the work that we have done in building up the church will be shown for what it really is. We read, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done just as the language of constructing a building out of various materials in this passage is metaphorical, so is the language here about fire metaphorical. That our service to Christ will be tested by fire means that everything not meeting the test will be consumed. Well, everything meeting the test will survive. Our service that does not meet the test will have no lasting value. Well, our service that meets the test will have eternal value. Observe in verse 13 exactly what Christ will test. He will test, quote, what sort of work each one has done. Not the quantity, but the quality. He will test what sort of work each one has done. Did you build with gold, silver, and precious stones? Or did you build with wood, hay, and straw? Was your work for the Lord Jesus Christ consistent with the foundation of Christ and Him crucified? Did you build with the wisdom of God, or did you build with the wisdom of the world? Paul says in verse 14, If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. In other words, if your work survives the test, you will receive a reward from your Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. What that reward is, the Bible does not exactly say. But it certainly is something to be desired. In verse 15, we read, If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Meaning, if your work does not survive the test, you will forfeit the rewards that you would have received. Now, Paul is quick to clarify that he's not talking about loss of salvation. Look at the end of verse 15. He says, Though he himself will be saved. He doesn't want any question in your mind that has nothing to do 
with, with losing salvation. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. In other words, when the believer will give an account to Christ, salvation will not be at stake. However, it will be unpleasant for, for your work to be found lacking and to lose rewards. Now, in this passage, Paul is not talking about being rewarded for victory over temptation and losing rewards for yielding to temptation. Rather, he's talking about being rewarded for faithfulness in ministry and losing rewards for unfaithfulness in ministry. No, no matter how hardworking a minister of the gospel may be, unless he uses the proper materials, he will lose his reward. There are many pastors today who appear in the eyes of the world to be successful, who will lose their reward because they are not sticking to the Word of God, which centers on Christ and Him crucified. They may wander off into preaching moralism, they may wander off into preaching political activism. They may wander off into preaching self-esteem or teaching pro preaching prosperity and on and on the list goes. Their churches grow in numbers, but this growth is not the growth that verses 6 and 7 say comes from God. It is easy to assume that we are doing the Lord's work because we are seeking to build His church. When in fact, we are not doing His work because we are using the wrong materials. Building the church with wood, hay, and straw is not the Lord's work. The Lord's work involves building with gold, silver, and precious stones. Building with the wisdom of God. Building with the Scriptures centered on Christ and Christ crucified. Much church work being done today will not stand the test on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The day will show it to be perishable, and of no eternal value, because it does not share the character of the foundation, because it does not reflect Christ and Him crucified. It will be burned up, there will be no reward for it. So this passage warns us in two ways. It warns us about building with the wrong materials, and it also warns us about churches and ministries that are made of wood, hay, and straw. Let me ask you, would you rather be a part of a large church just around the corner from your house, made of wood, hay, and straw? Or would you rather be a part of a small church, further away, made of gold, silver, and precious stones? It's obvious. You would never pick a church made of wood, hay, and straw, knowing that it will be consumed, that work will be consumed on the last day. That, that work will not stand the test of time. Obviously, we want to be a part of a church that's made of gold, silver, precious stones. Those things that Christ has instructed are to be used in the construction of that church. Because that work will endure. That work is eternal. That work is the work that Christ commends. So this passage warns, or warns about building with the wrong materials, it warns about churches and ministries that are made of wood, hay, and straw. But not only warns, it also instructs. It instructs us to build with the right materials in view of the future day of our Lord's return. We, we need to have the eternal perspective every day, all throughout the day. As we serve in Christ's church, we do so with an eye to the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ knowing that we will give an account to Him. He will examine our work in building the church. He will examine the materials that we have been using. And so we are to serve with an eye to that day, an eye to the final day, and we'll stand before the head of the church. I want to be rewarded on that day. And brothers and sisters, I, I want to see you rewarded on that day. I hope you desire to be rewarded. If you're going to use the proper materials, understand that you need to then be growing in your understanding of God's Word. If you only have a superficial understanding of God's Word, how can you build the church with the Word of God? We have to be growing in our understanding of the Scriptures. 
filling our minds with the scriptures, that we might be able to build with the proper materials. May the Lord give you and I the grace to build with the word of God. May he give us the grace to build in accordance with his word. And may we receive our Lord's commendation on that last day unto God's eternal glory. Now before concluding our time in this passage, I need to say a word about how verse 15 has been misused. Look at verse 15 again. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The the words here about being saved, but only as through fire, have been used by Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy to defend their teaching on purgatory. They wrongly teach that those who have been baptized and die in fellowship with the church, but who have not attained a state of perfection, go to a place called purgatory, a place of temporal punishment in the intermediate realm. They suffer in purgatory until all their sin is purged away, after which time they are translated to heaven. Their suffering is in proportion to their guilt and impurity or impenitence. Now, the primary passage that is used to defend the teaching of purgatory is in the Apocrypha, not in Scripture. The Apocrypha is not Scripture. It's not inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's not the Word of God. And it's in the, it's in the Apocrypha that the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church look primarily for their support on purgatory. A secondary passage that they use in support of this teaching is verse 15 in our text when it talks about being saved, though as through fire. Now understand that to use these words here in verse 15 about being saved, though as through fire, to use that to support the idea of purgatory is a terrible misuse of verse 15. Verse 15 does not speak of being saved through fire. It speaks of being saved only as through fire. The fire is a metaphor here. And verse 13 in our text indicates that what Paul is speaking of here will occur on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, not at the present time. And and the the doctrine of purgatory is saying that right now, those who die go to purgatory. Our study has shown that verse 15 has to do with loss of reward, not, not being saved from our sins through suffering in a place of torment. Understand that the doctrine of purgatory is a false doctrine that is contrary to the Scriptures. The Bible teaches that the believer who dies will go immediately into God's presence. I'm going to give you three references for that. First of all, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. 2 Corinthians 5, 8. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. The Apostle Paul says for the believer, there's only two possibilities. Either we're here on the earth in our body, or we are away from our body in heaven in the presence of the Lord. There's no intermediate state. It's one or the other. Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. Paul says, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. He's talking about either he may be executed, and in that case... If he's executed, he's going to depart from this world and he's going to be with Christ. The other possibility is he's going to remain, he'll be released from prison, he'll remain on, he'll continue to ministry for some time before he dies. He says his desire is the first, to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. Again, we see that when the believer dies... Their soul departs the body and goes to be with the Lord Jesus Christ, not an intermediate place of suffering. And then in Luke 23, verse 43, Jesus said to the thief on the cross, who had certainly done some vile things, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He wasn't repentant until just a moment before Jesus speaks these words. At first, when he was there next to Jesus on the cross, the thief was reviling Jesus. And then Christ does a work in his heart. He becomes repentant. 
He believes in Jesus. He says, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. No intermediate place to be purified by fire. Today you will be with me in paradise. So the Bible teaches that the believer who dies will go immediately into God's presence. Also understand that the doctrine of purgatory teaches that we must add something to the redemptive work of Christ. We must add to Christ's redemptive work for our sins, we must add our own suffering in purgatory for our sins. And that would mean that Christ's redemptive work for us was not enough to pay the penalty for all of our sins. And that's outright heresy. That outright blasphemes God and the gospel. What did Christ say on the cross? He said, it is finished. John 19, verse 30. The work of redemption, the work of atonement, the work of satisfaction for our sins, finished upon the cross. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation, because Jesus was condemned in our place. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. But when Christ, laid, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By a single offering, Christ has perfected for all time the believer. Christ offered Himself as a once-for-all sacrifice that makes us perfect in the sight of God as far as having a perfect standing with God. And so, to say that there is a purgatory, to say that the Christian is going to go to a place of suffering, they're going to suffer for their sins, where their sins will be purged before they enter into heaven, that that, that is demeaning the work of Christ. It is demeaning the gospel of grace. It's absolutely contrary to the gospel of grace. It's adding human merit to divine grace. Is adding works to faith. And we are to reject entirely the doctrine of purgatory as a false teaching. Well, this morning in our text we have seen that the foundation of a church is the gospel of Jesus Christ and His atoning death and triumphant resurrection. So let me ask you, my friend, is your life built on that foundation. This morning, is your life built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and His finished work at the cross where He died for sinners and His triumphant resurrection on the third day? Is your life built on that foundation? Jesus, in concluding the Sermon on the Mount, He told a parable about a wise man uh, who built his house on the rock. And the storms came, the rain came down, the floods came up, the wind beat against that house, and that house stood firmly. That house stood strong there on the rock, because it was there placed on the rock. In contrast, you have a foolish man, who he builds his house on the sand, And again, the rains come down, the floods come up, the winds beat against that house, and great was that fall because it was not founded on the rock. It was on the sand. The foundation makes all the difference. Jesus says, if you do His words, if you hear His words and you do His words, you are like that wise man who built his house on the rock. But if you do not hear Christ's words and you do not do Christ's words, then you are like that foolish man building on the sand. The only foundation on which we can stand, 
when the storms of God's judgment come is the foundation of Jesus Christ. The foundation of Jesus Christ and His finished work at the cross and His triumphant resurrection. Is your life found today on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know Him as your Savior? Do you know Him as your Lord? Are you trusting in His finished work? You may think that your good works give you a secure standing before God. But what does the Bible say? It says in Isaiah, I believe it's chapter 64, that even our good works are like filthy rags in God's sight. Even the works that we see as good works are not pleasing to God. Because at the core of our being, we are rebellious against God. And the law of God exposes that. It shows us that we are rebels at heart and in need of a Savior. If today you are trying to stand before God on your good works, if you're trying to stand before God on your supposed goodness, understand you are standing on sand and you will fall. And great will be that fall on the final day. You may think that your Christian parents give you a secure standing before God. You know that your, your, your parents know Christ and that they have a secure standing before God and you assume that because you're part of their family, you also have a secure standing. But understand, no one can believe in Christ for you. Your parents' faith is not your faith unless you are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't ride into heaven holding on to your parents. On the final day when Jesus comes again, you will not be holding your parents' hand. On that final day, you alone will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And so children, you need to be found, your lives need to be founded on the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may think that your spirituality gives you a secure standing before God. You may, you may think, well, because I, I pray, because I believe in, in God, uh, because I do spiritual things, I, I have a good standing with God. Understand that that means nothing in God's sight. Nothing. You, if you're trusting in spirituality for a right standing with God, you also are standing on sand. And you also will have a great fall when judgment comes. Each one of us needs to know Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. Each one of us needs to repent of our sin and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Each one of us needs to submit our life to Jesus Christ in faith to follow Him the rest of our days. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 calls Christ a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. And then we read in verse 6, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. If you don't know Him, you will be put to shame on that final day. Standing in your works and standing in your sin, you will be put to shame. But the promise is whoever believes in the cornerstone, whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will not be put to shame. Make sure that you are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. Make sure that you are standing on the solid foundation of Christ and Him crucified. Well, this text that we have read is so important for us. There's so many different ideologies around us. It's bringing us back to what it means to be the church. It's bringing us back to what it means to, to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in His church. It's bringing us back to the sorts of materials that we are to build with. It brings us back to remembering there's coming a day when Jesus will come again and we will have to give an account to Him. Oh, may, by God's grace, may we be faithful in the work that Christ has entrusted to us for the glory of God. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you, that Father, that you sent your beloved Son, who is very God of very God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you became man, that you were born into this human race to which we belong. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to save sinners. You came to set sinners free. And we thank you for salvation by your grace, received through faith in Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would enable us to be faithful in building with the right materials in your church. Lord, help us collectively as Christian Fellowship Church uh, to be faithful and to grow in building with your wisdom rather than building with the wisdom of this world, building with your word, building with the gospel of Christ and Him crucified. And Lord, help each one of us individually as members of Christ's church to be faithful and serving in the various ways that you would gift us and lead us. We pray, Father, that you would enable us to, to serve in your church for this purpose that your church would be built up with the right materials, using the right methods, those that you reveal to us in your word. And we pray, Father, that we would not give way to pragmatism, that we would not give way to trying to figure out how to get better results using the world's ways. But Lord, may we trust in you the one who gives the growth. And may we be found faithful with what you've entrusted to us. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.